Protect me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a goodly heritage. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Therefore my heart is glad and my soul rejoices. My body also rests secure. For you do not give me up to Sheol or let your faithful ones see the pit. This is the word of the Lord. German scholars always ask us to consider the Sitzenleben of a particular passion. What is its setting in life? Some of our very best scholars, Dr. Hans Joachim Krauss, Dr. Arthur Weiser, Dr. Sigmund Mowinkel, think this is a very old psalm. You will see that the oldest manuscripts available to us, which are only about a thousand years old, say that this is the work of David. It's called a mictum of David. Some believe so. But it is a poem originally written for a person who's been delivered from death, perhaps the advance of another army, perhaps some life-threatening illness, a person who feels, I have not been taken to Sheol. The equivalent for Sheol in Greek is Hades. It's not a hot and fiery place. It's a cold, damp, dark place like a tomb. I told you that one of my football coaches used to say to me, I want you to fire out of there like a bat out of Hades. Not a hot and fiery place, a cold, damp, dark place where bats sleep and where they come out at night. Okay? Hades, Sheol, a place of dampness, darkness, like a tomb. And the pit was simply nothingness. You know, you just dropped off into nothingness. You have not abandoned me to Sheol nor to the pit. So some think this is a poem of a person who has experienced some miraculous deliverance. Others think this great hymn of the Hebrew faith came into great prominence after the Babylonian exile, when those who had been forced marched into Babylon had their children and grandchildren at least 50 years later, so they were allowed to go home again. They had not been assimilated into the Babylonian culture so that they ceased to exist as a separate people. You recall that it happened to the ten northern tribes when they were overrun by the Assyrians a couple hundred years earlier. No, the southern tribes held together. They were Jews when they went there. They were Jews when they came back. And they're thanking God that their people were not allowed to be cast into Sheol and the pit. But the reason Psalm 16 is chosen as an appropriate text for the third Sunday of Eastertide is that Luke says both Peter and Paul use this psalm in talking about the resurrection of Jesus. If you go to Acts chapter 2, you find that Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. That stories have been circulated for seven weeks about what happened to that crucified Jesus. And someone says, get that fisherman and have him tell us what happened. And Simon Peter preaches to them. And one of the things he says is that we all know about David's tomb and how David's body wasted away. But David wrote that there is one whose body is not delivered over to Sheol or the pit, and that one was the coming Jesus of Nazareth. A few chapters later, Paul has arrived in Antioch of Pisidia, and Paul makes his argument the same way we know about the tomb of our ancestor David, who had lived a thousand years before. We know about his tomb, we know about the ruins in that tomb, 
Well, guess what? In one of his poems, he said, there is one whose body is not delivered up to Sheol, not delivered up to the pit, and that one is Jesus Christ. 500 years ago, Martin Luther decided they were right, and a little later, John Calvin decided also they were right. What does this psalm say to you and me? I've underlined four things. The first thing is that part about Elohim, my Yahweh, if you would. Elohim, the oldest name the Jews had for God. Yahweh, or Eye, Asher, Eye, I am who I am, the name given to Moses at the burning bush. Elohim, my Yahweh, I know that all the good that comes to me comes from you. Anton Chekhov was born in the year 1860 in Russia, one year before the American Civil War began. He lived only 44 years, but some of his plays are still being produced. In fact, one of his plays, written in 1896, 112 years ago, recently opened on Broadway again. A review in the Wall Street Journal reminded those of us who had to study Chekhov as a part of our liberal arts education Remind this play called The Seagull. The line most quoted from that play is not in the last act. It's in the very first moments of the play. Uh, Medvedenko and Masha are in a room talking with each other, and he asks her, Why do you always dress in black? And she answered, I'm in mourning for my life. Remember? I'm in mourning for my life. If you read much Chekhov, you know that's, that he, though he called much of his work comedies, they are tragedies to you and me because most of the time he's pointing out how people are killing time, we say, killing their lives rather than living their lives. This ancient poet, whose poem became a hymn of the Hebrew faith, one of only 150 preserved here in one book, 150. Your hymn book has more than 700. At a time when most people could not read nor write, they memorized their hymns. They learned them. They could sing them from memory. And here is this great hymn of their faith, hundreds and hundreds of years singing, that all that is good that comes to me comes from the hand of Elohim, my Yahweh. Okay? All right, number two. In the fifth and sixth verses, we have a number of expressions that come right out of the book of Joshua. So whoever wrote this poem originally was very familiar with the scroll of Joshua. Let me remind you of that setting. Moses, with God's overpowering help, visiting plague upon plague upon the Egyptians, has finally secured their freedom. They have fled Egypt all the way to the promised land. Moses sends out one representative from each of the twelve tribes to scout out the land. The twelve return. Ten of the twelve say, it's impossible. They are like giants. We are like grasshoppers. Anthropologists say that those ancient Philistines had probably come from Western Europe and were in fact a foot taller than the people who lived in Asia Minor. Two young men, Caleb, Joshua, said, We can do it. The Lord is on our side. But Moses took the majority report. And God said, Okay, then we're going to have to wait till this generation dies out 
and the next generation will go into the promised land. So for 40 years, Moses led the children of Israel from watering hole to watering hole. Not even he got to cross the river. God led him up onto a mountain where he could see the Jordan, but he never got to cross it. God said, that younger generation, now grown old themselves, will lead my people into Canaan. And Joshua, one of the two who said, we can do this, the Lord is on our side, led them across the river. And then we have these words in the book of Joshua, where he took a, a lot and they cast lots and gave this tribe one section of land and he rolled the dice, if you would, and gave this group that section of land and the third and fourth all the way through the tribes of Israel. So these are the words you have back in Joshua. My chosen portion, my cup, my lot, boundary lines, pleasant places, goodly heritage. All of those words come right together in the book of Joshua. And so this poet is remembering too, following up all the good that comes into my life, I know as a gift of the one true God, the one who met Moses the burning bush and gave him the new name. Well, this one has also given me a, a goodly heritage. If you read my column in our church paper this week, you saw that I was quoting from Eugene Peterson's translation of Psalm 16. And in his translation, he says, You, Lord, are my first choice my one and only, and now I see that you've also chosen me and made me an heir. You hear me quote Sue Monk Kidd from time to time. Uh, Sue is a minister's wife. Uh, she wrote devotional materials for many years and then decided to venture out and see if she could become a novelist and has had several successful novels as well. But the first thing she ever got published, she got published more than 30 years ago, and that was a story about something that had happened to her even earlier. Uh, she got married young, right after her sophomore year in college. She met a guy who had just graduated from college and was ready to go on to seminary. So he decided he wanted to go to seminary in Texas, which was more than a thousand miles from where the two of them had grown up. So that late summer after they were married, they moved down to Texas and he began graduate school and she now was a junior in college. After four months, it was Thanksgiving time, a brief holiday, and Sue said, we both realized this was the first Thanksgiving we'd ever had without our families. But seminary students then, I can assure you, had very little money, not enough money to make a thousand mile trip. So Sue said, I knew Thanksgiving Day was going to be the pits, so I resolved I would sleep as late as I could. Just sleep through as much of it as possible. And she said, finally, late mid-morning of Thanksgiving morning, I woke up, discovered my husband had already gotten out of bed. I walked in the other little room of our apartment, and there he was sitting at the table working hard on another paper. He said, Happy Thanksgiving. I said, Yeah, right. And the phone rang. She said, almost at that moment, the phone rang, and she picked it up, and her mother was saying to her, Oh, Sue, we wanted to wish you a happy Thanksgiving. Can you hear all of us in the background? And she said, I started crying. I knew my two teenage brothers would be there. I knew my grandfather and grandmother were there. I knew how my mother and father's house was smelling. Thanksgiving 
roasting turkey and dressing and homemade pies. I could smell it over the phone. And I said, Happy Thanksgiving to you too, Bob. We talked a minute and then hung up. Well, she said, I opened the door to our pantry. There was one can of spaghetti. You know how canned spaghetti tastes? One can of spaghetti. And she said, three potatoes that had already started to sprout. I opened the little refrigerator, and there were three apples, shriveled, had been there a long time. And I pushed the door to and started to cry again. And suddenly I heard noise, and I went to the window and looked out behind our apartment building. There were boys playing baseball. And about that time, one of them hit the ball and drove it over the center fielder's head. It just kept rolling. And then I saw a kid, maybe nine or ten years old, with braces on both legs and those aluminum crutches on his arms, chasing the ball. He was putting down the crutches and vaulting toward that ball. The ball had rolled into a muddy little ditch. And just before he got there, his crutches stuck in the mud, and he went forward flat on his face. He fell on the ball. I saw him pick it up and stick it in his pocket, and then push himself back up out of the mud and start back to the field to get close enough he could throw it to the center fielder. But as he took that ball out of his pocket and threw it to the center fielder, you should have seen his face. It was radiant. He was a part of the game. He was an important person. What a smile. I've never forgotten the look on that kid's face, she said. So suddenly I remembered our wedding gifts, still boxed up. And I got them out and started polishing on the pieces of silver. And an hour later, when I told my husband it was time to eat, the spaghetti looked pretty good with a little cheese grated on top. I'd mashed the potatoes. They were right palatable. And I'd made a little tart out of the apples. We had Thanksgiving. We did have Thanksgiving because God was good to us better than I had realized when I opened my eyes that morning. Number three, the Lord gives me counsel instructs me. You need to remember how important this word instruct is to Hebrews. The first five scrolls, the most important of the 39 scrolls in their Bible, are called Torah. They read through them every year. If you were to go to Temple Israel or Congregation B'nai Amunah, every Friday night for a year, you would hear them read through the Torah. And then they start over and read the Torah again. The New Testament calls it the law. It's a lousy rendering. The word Torah does not mean law. It means the instructions or the teachings. These five scrolls are the teachings, the instructions, and this affirms God teaches me. One of Tulsa's greatest scholars this city has ever produced, Dr. John Hope Franklin, if you've never had the privilege of being in his presence, he's a man whose face still radiates. He's 93 years old. He was in Tulsa again recently. 
Dr. John Hope Franklin was born at the little town of Rennie'sville. You familiar with that? A black community here in Oklahoma. When John Hope was just 10, and by the way, isn't that a wonderful middle name for a child? John Hope Franklin? When he was just 10, his lawyer father moved the family to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and young John Hope became a part eventually of Booker T. Washington High School. He was valedictorian of his class. He went on from there to some of the greatest universities in this country, earning a Ph.D. from Harvard. He was asked to join the faculty at Chicago University, University of Chicago, and in time he became head of the history department. Way back in 1947, he wrote a book called From Slavery to Freedom, a history book that sold more than four million copies. In 61 years, it's never been out of print. It is so cherished, so acclaimed as one of the really great books of the last century. Um, our Duke University finally realized what a marvelous talent this man was. And he ended up teaching at Duke and now is Professor Emeritus of the of the College of History at Duke University. When Dr. John Hope Franklin was in Tulsa recently, he told a story about that year he was graduated valedictorian of Booker T. Washington High School. The Mayo Hotel, he said, was still in its heyday. It was absolutely magnificent, 1933. And he said one of the service clubs, I hope it wasn't Rotary, but I'm afraid it probably was, one of the service clubs invited him to come to the Rotary meeting, I think, pretty sure it was Rotary, that he was invited because he was the valedictorian. Now, the valedictorian of Central High School that same year was also invited to that luncheon. His name was Daniel Borston. He would become the head of the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. These were two outstanding young men, but one was white and one was black. So Daniel Burston was seated with the white folks and John Hope Franklin was put at a table all by himself at least 15 feet from anybody else. But I want you to hear him. He said, this is my home. I love Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I can tell you that it made me think no less of myself. And I prayed God no less of them because of the lessons I had already been taught. At 93, he still speaks wonderfully well. He is still a man of hope, of enthusiasm, of confidence, that we are surely making progress, are we not? We are surely because of the instruction and the counsel we people of God have received. Number four. Now we come to this all-important matter about Sheol and the pit. Uh, scholars, Dr. James Mays and others who've written in the last ten years on, on this book of Psalms say, this is really not about resurrection from the dead. Not when it was written. Uh, this is really about a person or a whole nation of people escaping death. Either a person who was in battle or thought he was about to be in battle. There were men who wrote these poems back in those days, by and large, who escaped death. Or it could be about the people of Israel. Certainly they understood it that way after they had survived 50 years in Babylon. 
and had not been assimilated. They were still a separate people and a people of God. But when Peter remembered this hymn of his faith, when Paul remembered this hymn of his faith, Luke says they included it in their argument for the resurrection of Jesus. That even if it had not ever been about life after death, it was now about life after death. Now it was about what happens after one dies. Is that damp, dark place the end of everything? Are human beings actually dumped into the pit? Is it only about from dust you came and to dust you shall return? Or is it what Paul was writing to the Corinthians before the four Gospels ever got written? We shall not all die, he said. Paul still believed at the time he wrote 1 Corinthians, he was going to be around when Jesus got back. And the last thing that we know of that he wrote, he's about decided he's not going to make it either. But as he wrote to the Corinthian church, he's pretty sure he was going to be around when Jesus came back. And he said, we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. We shall all be changed. We of faith shall all be given a resurrection body. And when the trumpet shall sound, we shall be raised incorruptible. Richard Sutliff sang those words for us just before Christmas. In that portion of Handel's Messiah, Gail and I were sitting right down near the trumpeters. A little piccolo trumpet was being played. And when it sounded, you could hear it. And Richard, with a big bass voice, was singing, We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed, and we shall be raised incorruptible. Dr. Fred Craddock has written, So whether first the Lord comes or we go, tomorrow we meet the Lord. Well, basketball ends tomorrow night. Lots of folks have been following March Madness. My little grandsons and I were talking about it yesterday at lunch while we had Mexican food, who we were going to root for. We all decided we were going to root for Kansas to beat North Carolina. We were going to root for Memphis to beat UCLA. We won those two. After much struggle, we won them, didn't we, Parker? We won those two. Now, Monday night... Monday night, that final, and then basketball is over. And what follows? The Masters Golf Tournament in Augusta, Georgia. Next Thursday, the golfers tee off in that beautiful place. I've never been to Augusta, but I've seen it on television many times. What a place. Hole after hole named for the flowers on that particular fairway and around that green the dogwood hole and this particular azalea hole and so on. More flowers than I can name. Eighteen of them named for all these beautiful flowers. Dr. Tankersley, Dr. Susan Pensera are both Jayhawks. They both have degrees from Kansas. Dr. Tankersley got his undergraduate degree there. Dr. Susan Pensera, her doctor's degree from the University of Kansas. So they've been enjoying this basketball season. And now... When we think of golf, we may also think of people whom we've met. Uh, when we first got to see a big PGA tournament at Southern Hills here, one of the golfers that I got to see was Payne Stewart. 
Payne Stewart was wearing SMU on his chest. And I was very proud. He was the most famous professional golfer who played golf for SMU. Remember Payne Stewart? He wore clothes designed from 75 years before. The big bloomer kind of pants, you know, that gathered right under the knee. And he had a different outfit for every one of the professional football teams. I mean, on Thursday, he might have on the colors of the Green Bay Packers. And then on Friday, he might have the Dallas Cowboys. And on Saturday, it might be the New York Giants. And the next day, it might be the St. Louis Cardinals back years ago. So he didn't dress like everybody else, wore a little Scottish cam on his head. And he didn't act like everybody else. Not a bad person, just a person who had a good time most everywhere he was. But Payne Stewart had a Methodist, Christian, heartwarming experience changed his life. He would tell people who were close to him, not on television, not right after a golf tournament, but people who were closest to him, that he had his heart strangely warmed. And that Almighty God somehow whispered to him that his sins had been forgiven, that nothing stood between him and God. Nothing. And even those who knew him best said, you could see a change in his life. He still loved to play golf. Still loved to be on magnificent, beautiful courses with all the flowers, but making a putt wasn't the biggest thing in his life anymore. And then you remember after one tournament, he and several others got in a small Learjet that took off from Florida bound for Texas again. But it didn't make it to Dallas. It veered off course. It was set on automatic pilot, and it just kept flying and flying until it ran out of gas, and then it crashed. Investigators tried to figure out what had happened, and the best they could come up with was perhaps the pressurization system shut off. It didn't work properly. They got up nearly 40,000 feet, and the pressurization perhaps did not work, and everybody lost consciousness. And so the plane flew the way it was set to fly until it ran out of fuel, and then it crashed. But what I want you to hear is what one of the professional golfers said at the funeral. He said, I too have had such a religious experience. Payne and I talked about that, he said. And we said, isn't it sort of strange that people talk about moving from the land of the living to the land of the dying? When in fact, God makes it possible for us to move from the land of the dying to the land of the living forever.